Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you for joining me around the fireside tonight. My name is Joe, and I'm here to tell you a story. A long overdue story of giant men and giant dreams. A story of blue snow and blue calves. A story of untamed wilderness and of untapped potential. A story held in the hearts of millions for generations. Presenting the first chapter of Paul Bunyan by James Stevens, published in 1925. I picked this story as a subtle thank you and nod to my friends from across the pond who show support. It's a beloved American tale, and I can see why. It's been a while, hasn't it? Over a year since I last uploaded something, I want to just apologise first for taking this long to upload something new. It's been a bit of a roller coaster year with new jobs and new surroundings and general upheaval and change in my life. I would like to sincerely thank you all for continuing to listen and I just want to say that I appreciate every single one of you just as much now as I did when I first started this show over two years ago. In the intervening year, we've since hit 1.5 million listens, which is, in a word, madness. That's more than the population of some countries, and sometimes I find it hard to even compute that as a number. Even though I haven't uploaded something in ages, we still almost hit 1,000 listens a day, which, I'll freely admit, has made my heart incredibly happy uh, throughout this last year or so. You're all wonderful, so thank you. Uh, I'll do my best to begin sharing stories again, and I hope that you continue to enjoy listening to them. If you'd like to support the show, again, feel free to head over to talesbythefireside.com forward slash support, or share, or like, and subscribe, or just simply enjoy the story. That's enough. 
I'd also like to take a second to just apologise for my attempt at speaking French in this episode. You wouldn't believe the amount of takes that this took, and my British mouth really struggled with the French words, as you'll soon hear, so I'd like to hand on my heart apologise to all French listeners and French speakers out there for the butchering that you might hear shortly. But with all that aside, and without any further ado, please get comfortable, let go of the daylight, and join me for our story. Paul Bunyan by James Stevens The Blue Snow Paul Bunyan was the one historian of the useful and the beautiful. Other writers of history tell only of terrible and dramatic events. Therefore, the chronicles of Paul Bunyan, the mighty logger, the inventor of the lumber industry, the leader hero of the best band of bullies, the finest bunch of savages that ever tramped the continent, the master orator of a land that has since grown forests of orators. His chronicles alone tell of the winter of the blue snow. The blue snow fell first in the north. It fell scantily in its earlier hours, its sapphire flakes floating down on the waves of a mild winter wind and glittering in an ashen gold light, a sober pale radiance which shimmered through the silver mists. There was poetry in the spectacle of these hours, and then the hard grey ground of a peopleless land was hidden under a blanket of dark blue, and the nameless frozen lakes and rivers the silent valleys and the windy hills of the country were all spread over with a sky-dyed snow. When the last light of this day went out, the boughs of the great pines were creaking under heavy wet masses of snow like torn bales of blue cotton. There was a rush in the snowfall now, as a fiercer wind whipped it on. Its heavy flakes were driven down in thick whirling clusters, in streaming veils, leaping lines and dashing columns, and there were cloud-like swarms of the blue flakes which settled slowly, floating easily in the hard wind. This wind got so strong that it shivered the timber, and the piles of blue snow which had gathered on the pine boughs were shaken down. Most of this snow fell into blue mounds around the trees, but some of it fell on the fauna of the forest, adding to their troublement. At the time of the winter of the blue snow, the forest creatures of this land lived a free and easy life. Man was not there to embarrass them with accusations of trespass and to slay them for their ignorance of the crime. Their main problem was the overcrowding of the forests. The vast moose herds, who populated the woods so densely that traffic through their favourite timber was dangerous, made the matter of getting food a simple one for the carnivorous animals. There were many moose to spare, and the elders of the herds, like most prolific parents, never became frantically resentful over the loss of an offspring. The moose themselves, of course, lived easily on the crisp, juicy moose grass which grew so plenteously in the regions before the blue snow. So the carnivorous creatures of the forest lived a fast and furious life, 
and it is certain that if they were capable of praise, they had good praises for the moose meat, which they got with such little difficulty. The coal-black Bruins of the North were an especially happy crowd. Theirs was a gay, frolicsome life in the summertime, when the big Bruins danced and galloped through sunny valleys, and the small ones had rolling races on shady hillsides. In the fall, all fat and drowsy from moose meat, the Bruins would go to sleep in their warm caves and dream pleasantly all winter. They were all dreaming now, and the blue snow would no doubt have fallen and melted away without their knowledge had it not been for the moose herds which crowded the forest aisles. Moose at that time did not have it in them to enjoy wonder, and they had not learned to combat fear, for they were never afraid. Still, they had some imagination, and the moose trembled when the first blue snowflakes fell among them. They kept up an appearance of unconcern at first, eating moose moss as usual. But they sniffed gingerly at the blue streaks in it, and they stole furtive glances at each other as they bravely ate. This strange snowfall was certainly breeding fear of it in the hearts of all the moose, but each one seemed determined to be the last one to show it. However, as a day end got near, and the wind grew more boisterous, shaking snow masses from the trees, some of the moose had fits of trembling and eye-rolling which they could not conceal. When a heap of snow dropped on the back of some timid moose, he would twist his head sharply and stare with bulging eyes at the mysteriously fearsome colour. Then he would prance wildly until the unwelcome snow was bucked from his shivering back. When the early shadows of evening came among the trees, the moose all had a heavy darkness of fear in their hearts. Little was needed to put them in a panic. It was a great bull moose, a herd king, who forgot the example he owed to his weaker kindred and unloosed a thunderous bellow of terror which started the moose flight. The first memorable incident of the winter of the blue snow. An overladen bough cracked above him. It fell and straddled him from quivering tail to flailing horns, burying him under its wet blue load. He reared out roaring, and his own herd echoed the cry. Then a storm of moose bellows crashed through the forest. This tumult died, but there followed the earth-shaking thunder of a stampede. The Bruins, awakened from their pleasant dreams, came out from their caves and blinked at the hosts of terrified moose which were galloping past. The earth-shaking uproar of the flight at last thoroughly aroused the Bruins and they began to sniff the air uneasily. Then they noticed the blue snow, and now in front of every cave crowds of Bruins were staring down at the snow, and each Bruin was swaying heavily lifting his left foot as he swayed to the right, and lifting his right foot as he swayed to the left. The Bruins had no courage either, and once they had got sleep out of their heads, nearly all of them took out after the moose herds. The wind roared louder with each passing minute this night, and the flakes of the blue snow were as dense as the particles of a fog. At dawn, a blue blizzard was raging, but the fauna of the forest plunged tirelessly on, seeking a refuge of white snow. And Niagara, made faithless by the blue terror, galloped behind them. Niagara, 
the great moosehound, breadwinner for the student of history Paul Bunyan, his real name, and his companion also. Paul Bunyan lived at Tanir Bay. He dwelt in a cave that was as large as ten mammoth caves, and which had a roof loftier than any tower or spire. But this cave was none too vast for Paul Bunyan, the one man of this region, but one man as great as a city of ordinary men. His tarpaulins and blankets covered one-fourth of the cave floor. His hunting clothes, traps and seines filled another quarter, and the rest of the space was occupied by a fireplace and his papers and books. For Paul Bunyan was a student now. There had been a time when he had gone forth in the hunting and fishing season to gather the huge supplies of provender which he required. But now his days and nights were all spent with books. Paul Bunyan's favourite food was raw moose meat, and after he found Niagara in the tall wolf country, he no longer needed to hunt. Each night Niagara trotted out into the darkness and satisfied his own hunger, then he carried mouthfuls of moose back to the cave until he had a day's supply of meat for his master. Niagara was ever careful not to frighten the moose herds, he hunted stealthily and with quiet. The moose at night were only conscious of a dark cloud looming over them. Then numbers of the herds would disappear without painful sound. The moose, if they had thought about it, would have been only thankful to Niagara for lessening the congestion of the forests. So, Paul Bunyan fared well on the moose meat which Niagara brought him, and he lived contentedly as a student in his cave at Tanir Bay. Each day he studied, and far into the night he figured, taking a trimmed pine tree for a pencil. He would char its end in the fire and use the cave floor for a slate. He was not long in learning all the history worth knowing, and he became as good a figurer as any man could be. Vague ambitions began to stir in his soul after this, and he often deserted his studies to dream about them. He knew he would not spend his days forever in a cave at Tanir Bay. Somewhere in the future a great work was waiting to be done by him. Now it was only a dream, but he was sure that it would be a reality, and he came to think more and more about it. The books were opened less and less, the pine tree pencil was seldom brought from its corner. Paul Bunyan now used another pine tree which still had its boughs. It was a young one, and he brushed his curly black beard with it as he dreamed. But he was still a contented man at the time of the winter of the blue snow, for his dreams had not yet blazed up in a desire for any certain attainment. On the first day of the blue snow, Paul Bunyan was in a particularly contented mood. He sat all that day before his fire, so charmed with drowsy thoughts was he that he did not once look out. It had been dark a long time before he rolled into his blankets. He awoke at the dawn of a day that had scarcely more light than the night. He was cold, and he got up to throw an armful of trees on the fire. Then he saw the blue drifts which had piled up before the cave, and he saw the fog of the blue blizzard. He heard the roar of a terrific wind too, and he knew that the storm was perilous as well as strange. But Paul Bunyan thought gladly of the blue snow, for it was a beautiful event, and the historians he liked most would write wonderful books about it. He kicked the drifts away from the cave entrance, 
but the usual pile of slain moose was not under them. Paul Bunyan was a little worried as he thought that Niagara might have lost himself in the blue blizzard. The possibility that the unnatural colour of the storm might send the fauna of the forest and Niagara as well into a panicky flight did not occur to him. He was sure that Niagara would return with a grand supply of moose meat when the blue blizzard had passed. But the moose herds were now far to the north, fleeing blindly from the blue snow. The Bruins galloped after them. Before the day was over, Niagara had overtaken the Bruins and was gaining on the moose. At nightfall, his lunging strides had carried him far ahead of all the fauna of the forest. He galloped yet faster as he reached the blacker darkness of the Arctic winter. Now the darkness was so heavy that even his powerful eyes could not see in it. Niagara at last ran head-on into the North Pole. The terrific speed at which he was travelling threw his body whirling high into the air. When Niagara fell, he crashed through 90 feet of ice, and the polar fields cracked explosively as his struggles convulsed the waters under them. Then, only mournful blasts of wind sounded in the night of the farthest north. The moose were wearied out before they reached the White Arctic and the hordes of them fell and perished in the blizzard. Many others died from fright, and only a tiny remnant of the great herds survived. Some of the Bruins reached the polar fields, and they have lived there since. Their hair had turned white from fright, and their descendants still wear that mark of fear. Others were not frightened so much, and their hair only turned grey. They did not run out of the timber and their descendants, the silver-tipped grizzlies, still live in the northern woods. The baby Bruins were only scared out of their growth, and their black descendants now grow no larger than the cubs of Paul Bunyan's time. Being ignorant of this disaster, Paul Bunyan was comfortable enough while the blizzard lasted. He had a good store of trees on hand, and his cave was warm in the storm. He got hungry in the last days, but this emotion, or any emotion for that matter could have but little power over him when he was dreaming, and he dreamed deeply now of great enterprises. His dreams were formless, without any substance of reality, but they had brilliant colours, and they made him very hopeful. The sun shone at last from a whitish-blue sky, and the strange snow fell no more. A snapping cold was in the land, and pine boughs were bangled and brocaded with glittering blue crystals and crusty blue snow crackled underfoot. Paul Bunyan strapped on his snowshoes and started out through the border forest in search of Niagara. His was a kingly figure as he mushed through the pine trees, looming above all but the very tallest of them. He wore a wine-red hunting cap, and his glossy hair and beard shone under it with a blackness that blended with the cap's colour perfectly. His unique eyebrows were black also, covering a fourth of his forehead above the eyes. They narrowed where they arched down under his temples, and they ended in thin curls just in front of his ears. His moustache had natural twirls, and he never disturbed it. He wore a yellow muffler this morning, under his virile curly beard. His Mackinaw coat was of huge orange and purple checks. His Mackinaw pants were sober-seeming, having tan and light grey checks but some small crimson dots and crosses brightened them. Green wool socks showed above his black boots, which had buckskin laces and big brass eyelets and hooks, and he wore striped mittens of white and plum colour. 
Paul Bunyan was a gorgeous picture this morning in the frozen fields and forests, all covered with blue snow, which sparkled in a pale gold light. That day and the next, and for five more days, he searched in vain for Niagara, and neither did he see any moose herds in the woods. Only the frost crackles broke the silences of the deserted blue forests, and at last Paul Bunyan returned to his cave feeling depressed and lonely. He had not thought that the companionship of Niagara could mean so much to him. In his mood of depression, he forgot his hunger and made no further effort to find food. Lonely Paul Bunyan lay sleepless in his blankets this night, his eyes gleaming through hedge-like eyelashes as their gaze restlessly followed the red flares that shot from the fire and streaked the walls and roof of the cave. He did not realise that his first creative idea was now struggling for birth. He could yet feel no shape of it. He was only conscious of an unaccustomed turmoil of mind. Wearied with fruitless thought, he at last fell into a doze, but Paul Bunyan was not fated to sleep this night. A sustained crashing roar, as of the splintering of millions of timbers, brought him up suddenly. It was hushed for a short second, then a thudding boom sounded from Tanir Bay. Paul Bunyan leapt to the cave door, and in the moonlight he saw a white wave of water rolling over the blue beach. It came near to the cave before it stopped and receded. He pulled on his boots and two strides brought him down to the bay. It had been covered with ice seven feet thick and the cakes of this broken ice were now tossing on heaving waters. Now Paul Bunyan saw two ears show up sometimes above the billows. They were the shape of moose ears, but enormous as his two forefingers. Paul Bunyan waded out into the waters, and he reached these ears a mile from the shore. He seized them without fear, and he lifted. Now a head with closed eyes appeared. Shoulders and forelegs, body and hips, rear legs and curled tail. It was a calf, newborn apparently, though it was of such a size that Paul Bunyan had to use both arms to carry it. Nom de nom, exclaimed Paul Bunyan. Pauvre petit bleu bête. For this great baby calf was of a bright blue hue which was neither darker nor lighter than the colour of the beautiful strange snow. A blue baby ox calf, for such was its sex. Its ears drooped pitifully and its scrawny, big-jointed legs hung limply below Paul Bunyan's arms. A spasmodic shiver ran from its head to its tail and its saviour was glad to feel this shiver, for it showed that life remained. Paul Bunyan was touched with a tenderness that drove out his loneliness. Ma bete, he said, mon cher blue bebe ausha. He turned back through the waters, and the ice cakes pounded each other into bits as they rolled together in his wake. In thirty seconds, Paul Bunyan was back in his cave. He spread out his blankets in front of the fire, and he laid Bebe upon them. Through the night, Paul Bunyan worked over the blue ox calf, nursing him back to warm life, and in the morning, Bebe was breathing regularly and seemed to rest. Paul Bunyan leaned over to hear his exhalations, and the blue ox calf suddenly opened his mouth and caressed Paul Bunyan's neck with his tongue. Paul Bunyan then discovered that he was ticklish in this region, for the caress impelled him to roll and laugh. 
The serious student Paul Bunyan had never laughed before, and he now enjoyed the new pleasure to the utmost. Eh, bebe, he chuckled. Eh, bebe, sacre bleu, bon bleu, mon cher. Bebe raised his eyelids with astonishment upon hearing this cave-shaking chuckle, revealing large, bulging orbs which were of even heavenlier blue than his silken hair. Such affection and intelligence shone in his eyes that Paul Bunyan wished he would keep his eyes opened, but Bebe was weary and weak, and he closed them again. He is hungry, thought Paul Bunyan, and he went out to find him food. None of the animals he knew about could supply milk for such a calf as this blue Bebe, but he was a newborn, and his parents should be somewhere in the neighbourhood. Paul Bunyan stepped up on the cliff over which Bebe had bounced when he fell into Tonair Bay. From here, a wide swath of smashed timber ran straight up the side of the tallest northern mountain. It was here that Bebe had made his thunderous roll of the night before. Six strides brought Paul Bunyan to the mountain top. One of its jagged peaks was broken off, showing where Bebe had stumbled over it and fallen. Then Paul Bunyan followed the calf tracks down the landslide of the mountain. For two hours he trailed them, but they grew fainter as he went on, and in the big bay country the last fall of the blue snow had covered them. Paul Bunyan now had no doubt that Bebe's mother had been frightened by the strange colour of the snow, and that his bluishness was a birthmark. Like Niagara and the fauna of the forest, the parents had stampeded, forgetting the little one. It was no use to search for them. Paul Bunyan circled back through the forest and gathered a great load of moose moss before he returned to the cave. This rich food would meet the lack of milk. Bebe was asleep before the fireplace when Paul Bunyan returned, and he still slumbered while his friend prepared him some moose moss soup. But when a kettleful of steaming, odorous food was set before him, he opened his eyes with amazing energy and sat up. It was then that Bebe first showed the depth and circumference of his natural appetite, an appetite which was to have its effect on history. He drank most of the moose moss soup at three gulps. He seized the rim of the kettle in his teeth and tilted it up until even the last ten gallons were drained out of it. Then, looking roguishly at Paul Bunyan the while, he bit off a large section of the kettle rim and chewed it down, switching his pretty tail to show his enjoyment. Eh, bebe, <laughs> roared Paul Bunyan, doubling up with laughter for the second time in his life. And he praised the blue snow for giving him such a creature and did not mourn Niagara, who had never been amusing. But now, as Paul Bunyan doubled over for another rare roar of laughter, he got one more surprise. He was struck with terrifical force from the rear and knocked flat. Paul Bunyan hit the cave floor so hard that its walls were shaken, and a cloud of stones dropped from the roof, covering him from his hips to his thighs. Paul Bunyan dug himself out with no displeasure. He was marvelling too much to be wrathful. There is strength in this baby animal, he thought. Surely he has the muscle and energy for great deeds. For that was such a tremendous butting he gave me that I am more comfortable standing than sitting. So he stood and admired this strong and energetic ox calf, who was calmly seated on his haunches before the fireplace, now throwing his head to the right as he licked his right shoulder, now throwing his head to the left as he licked his left shoulder. While Paul Bunyan admired, he pondered, 
Then, even as Bebe had given him his first laugh, the ox calf now showed him the outline of his first real idea. The thought struck him that his student's life was finally over. There was nothing more for him to learn. There was everything for him to do. The hour for action was at hand. Indeed, if he was to keep this blue ox calf, action was truly necessary. Bebe had shown that his superabundance of vitality made him dangerous as well as delightful and amusing. This inexhaustible energy of his must be put to work. This vast store of power in an ox hide should be developed and harnessed to give reality to some one of Paul Bunyan's vague dreams. Soon, the well-fed blue ox calf lay down and slept contentedly. But Paul Bunyan did not sleep. One after another, occupations, enterprises and industries which would be worthy of his knowledge and his extraordinary mental and physical powers and which would also offer labour great enough for Bebe when he was grown were considered by Paul Bunyan. But nothing that he thought about satisfied him in the least. Certainly, he would have to invent something new. And as he thought of invention, his imagination blazed up like a fire in a dry forest. He was so unused to it that it got out of control, and its smoky flames hid his idea rather than illuminating it. Wearied at last, he lay on his side, for he remembered his bruises, and he fell into a troubled doze. Now he dreamed and saw great blazing letters which formed the words, Real America. He sat up, and his bruises gave him such sudden pain that the dream vanished utterly. But he dreamed again before morning. In this second dream he saw no words but a forest. A flame like a scythe blade sheared through the trees and they fell. Then Paul Bunyan saw in his dream a forest of stumps, and trees were fallen among them. For many days, Paul Bunyan thought about these dreams as he gathered moose moss for Bebe and sained fish from the bay for himself. And for many nights, he tried to dream again. But his sleep was the untroubled sleep of the weary. Bebe grew wonderfully as the weeks went by, and the moose moss made him saucy as well as fat. His bulging blue eyes got a jovial look that was never to leave them. His bellow already had bass tones in it. He would pour and snort and lift his tail as vigorously as any ordinary ox ten times his age. His chest deepened, his back widened, muscle masses began to swell and quiver under the fat of his shoulders and haunches. The drifts of the beautiful and natural snow melted away in streams of blue water and the marvellous colour of this historical winter vanished. But the glittering blue of Bebe's silken hair remained. His tail brush was of a darker blue. It looked like a heavily foliaged cypress bough in purple twilight. And Bebe was proud of this wonderful tail brush that belonged to him, for he would twist it from behind him and turn his head and stare at it by the hour. Now spring came, and Paul Bunyan determined to start out with his blue ox calf and try to find the meanings of his dreams. The bright, warm hours of these days gave him a tormenting physical restlessness, and his imagination ranged through a thousand lands, playing over a thousand activities. It was certainly the time to begin a life work. Each day, Paul Bunyan pondered his two dreams without finding substantial meaning in them. The first one indicated that he should go to real America, and this Paul Bunyan finally resolved to do, 
hoping that he would discover the work that was meant for him and the blue ox calf. He knew that he could not fare worse in that land, for few of the fauna of his native country had returned with the spring, and Paul Bunyan could not live well on a fish diet. Bebe's growing appetite too made some move a necessity, for the blue snow had killed the moose grass, and moose moss was a dry food without nourishment in the summer. The more Paul Bunyan thought about real America, the better he liked the idea of going there. Moose and grass, at least, were to be found across the border. And no doubt, real America was his land of opportunity. So one fine day, Paul Bunyan and Bebe came down to the border. The blue ox calf frolicked with his master and bellowed happily when he saw the green grass and clover on the hills of real America. He was for rushing over at once, but Paul Bunyan, the student, was not unmindful of his duty to his new country. He would not enter it without fitting ceremonies and pledges, though Bebe butted him soundly in resenting the delay. Now, Paul Bunyan lifted his hand solemnly and spoke in the rightful language of real America. In becoming a real American, I become Paul Bunyan, he declared. I am Paul Bunyan no more. Even so shall my blue ox calf be called Babe, and Bebe no longer. We are now real Americans both, hearts, souls, and hides. After uttering these words with feeling and solemnity, an emotion more expansive, more uplifting and more inspiring than any he had ever known, possessed Paul Bunyan and transfigured him. His chest swelled, his eyes danced and glittered, and his cheeks shone rosily through the black curls of his beard. And I'm glad of it, he roared, by the holy old Mackinaw and by the hell-jumping, high-tailed, fuzzy-eared, whistling old Jim Creed and seventeen slippery saints. I'm proud of it too, gloriously proud. Then he felt amazed beyond words that the simple fact of entering real America and becoming a real American could make him feel so exalted, so pure, so noble, so good. And an indomitable conquering spirit had come to him also. He now felt that he could whip his weight in wildcats, that he could pull the clouds out of the sky or chew up stones or tell the whole world anything. Since becoming a real American, roared Paul Bunyan, I can look any man straight in the eye and tell him to go to hell. If I could meet a man of my own size, I'd prove this instantly. We may find such a man and celebrate our naturalization in a real American manner. We shall see, yea, babe. Then the two great real Americans leaped over the border. Freedom and inspiration and uplift were in the very air of this country, and Babe and Paul Bunyan got more noble feelings in every breath. They were greatly exhilarated physically at first, and they galloped over valleys and hills without looking about them, but only breathing this soul-flushing air and roaring and bellowing their delight in it. But before the day was over, Paul Bunyan discovered that real America had its sober, matter-of-fact side also. A whisper stirred in his heart. To work. Take advantage of your opportunity. The whisper got louder and more insistent every moment, 
and at last the idea it spoke possessed Paul Bunyan, and he sat down to ponder it, letting Babe graze and roll on the clover-coloured hills. Now the whisper became an insistent cry. Work, work, work. Paul Bunyan looked up, and he seemed to see the word shining among the clouds. He looked down then into the vast valley, and he seemed to see... By the holy old Mackinaw, he did see the forest of his second dream. And now he knew it. His life work was to begin here. For many days and nights, Paul Bunyan pondered on the hillside before the great idea came to him. Like all great ideas, it was simple enough, once he had thought of it. Real America was covered with forests. A forest was composed of trees. A felled and trim tree was a log. Paul Bunyan threw aside his pine tree beard brush and jumped to his feet with a great shout. What greater work could be done in real America than to make logs from trees? He cried. Logging. I shall invent this industry and make it the greatest one of all time. I shall become a figure as admired in history as any of the great ones I have read about. Paul Bunyan then delivered his first oration. The blue ox calf was his only listener, and this was a pity, for Paul Bunyan's first oratorical effort, inspired as it was, surely was one of his noblest ones. But we know the outline of this oration, if not the words. It dealt mainly with the logging method which he had devised in the moment, the one which he used in his first work. So he told of his plan to uproot the trees by hand and to transport the logs overland, binding a bundle of them on one side of Babe and hanging a sack of rocks from the other side for ballast. It was months after this that he made his first improvement, the using of a second bundle of logs instead of rocks for ballast. And at this moment, Paul Bunyan, for all his foresight and imagination, could not have dreamed of the superb tools and marvellous logging methods that he was to originate, or of the countless crews of little loggers that he was to import from France, Ireland, Scotland and Scandinavia, or of the tremendous river drives and the mammoth camp life he was to create. He would have been bewildered then by the fact that he would someday need a foreman as grand as himself for his life work and the notion that he would someday need help in his figuring would have seemed like a far-fetched jest. No, in this first oration, imaginative and eloquent as it must have been, Paul Bunyan only spoke of simple work for himself and Babe. But he only tells us that the oration was not a long one, for the call to work came more insistently as he ended each period. At last, he had to answer this powerful call. He commanded, Yea, babe, and the baby blue ox and Paul Bunyan descended into the valley to begin the first logging in the real American woods. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 